Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to the latest edition of the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Anne-Marie Batson, the journalist and broadcaster, and, making her debut, Melissa Reddy of The Independent. Will the Real Manchester United stand up? It might have to this week, which could involve elimination from the Champions League and embarrassment in the Manchester derby. Of course, it could just as easily feature a season-defining win in Leipzig and the silencing of the noisy neighbours. That, in a nutshell, is United's season. Predictably unpredictable. Terrible one moment, terrific the next, sometimes in the same game. There's always the hope it will eventually turn out all right. Now, I know this is going to sound strange, Melissa, but does that inconsistency protect Oli Gunnar Solskjaer. In a strange sense, it does. I think for all the question marks against him and against Manchester United, what he's proved is that when he most needs a big result, he's able to get it. There was a point against Liverpool who were relentless at the time at Old Trafford last year. There were the wins over Tottenham and Manchester City before Christmas the 19-game unbeaten run after losing to Burnley back in January, wins against PSG, Newcastle and Leipzig last month. And then came, at Goodison Park, another victory. And all these results have been times where Solskjaer has been under so much pressure, you know, labelled his last chance, he's on the brink all the links with Maurizio Pochettino resurfacing in the build-up to all these games, and yet United deliver. Now, the problem with them being so inconsistent, while it does sort of save him, in a sense, is that it also leads to them being on the edge of crisis. It always seems like it's around the corner. And crisis not in the typical sense of the word, but in a framing off United. With the resources of the club, with the amount of investment that has gone into that squad. And I think oftentimes we tend to speak of United as though there are these minnows, you know, that Solskjaer doesn't have exactly the players he wants, that that team is not good enough but honestly look at the money pumped into that squad 
and you're expecting and I think everyone ex expects a manager to be able to extract the best out of his players and do that consistently we haven't really seen that at United and and that's why there is that culture of crisis because they're expected to, like I said, with the resources, with the investment, to be title challengers and to be that in a very serious sense. And they're not. And so uh, this noise is a very unhelpful, very dehabilitating for players and staff. You can quieten it with the results, but if they're unconvincing and inconsistent, you don't get very far. Yeah, I suppose, Anne-Marie, it is about the eventual impact of all this cumulative pressure, isn't it? And, and whether a club of this magnitude can be run in a state of recurrent crisis. I suppose the question is, what does Solskjaer's Manchester United look like? No one really knows, do they? I think that's a really, really good question. And it's one that I will struggle to answer because I don't know what Solskjaer's Man United looks like at this current time. For me, when I was watching Manchester United all those years ago, it was it was a team that knew how to, to inflict pain. It was a team that knew how to suffocate you. It was a team that instilled fear of you, that they were not going to give you any leeway, any spent, any space for the teams to do what they needed to do. They were going to crush you the minute the referee blew the whistle up until the end of that match. And now I'm I'm not exactly sure what their identity is. I know their style is very much an attacking play, but that's only come through, I think, since the acquisition of, acquisition of Bruno Fernandes, which is nearly a year now. It's going to be a year fairly soon when he, he joined Manchester United. They're there are two things that are going for United. I think their away wins in the Premier League, I think, gives them that protection. And Melissa mentioned about the money that's been spent on them as a squad. They have great depth in terms of squad depth, but there are favourites that are underperforming, that are not delivering, like Anthony Martial, like Paul Pogba. But I do get a sense that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is trying to get some consistency with his team selections. But unfortunately, Christmas is not too far away now and those games are going to come thick and fast. And I mentioned about Bruno Fernandes. I don't think we can underestimate the importance that he brings to the squad. And I think that him, I don't like this idea that a team is built around one player. I think it should be a team as a whole. But goodness me, we cannot underestimate the contribution that he has made to Manchester United. What he has, though, is he's trying to bring that team forward. And Ole Gunnar Solskjaer right now doesn't have the players, I think, that he needs to bring them to that level that I think Bruno Fernandes brings to that team. Yeah, well, when you think about Fernandes, he's had 38 games a full season, essentially. 22 goals, 14 assists. And I think the West Ham game proved that United can't afford to exclude him. Melissa, on a... On a Deeper level, one of the disparities here is is that literally between the home and away performances. You know, home, they are calcified almost, whereas away from home, I think it's nine straight Premier League wins, 12 in all domestically. Why is there that disparity, do you think? I think largely it it's because in the most fundamental elements, they're a counter-attacking unit. That is what they are built as. They're quite risk averse in that they defensively set up to hit you on the counter and that is often easier to implement away from home 
at home, you, as Manchester United, you have to take ownership of the ball. You have to build progressive play. And that is not what they're comfortable with. When United are at their best is when they are on a rapid break because their attacking depth and their attacking talent is is ridiculous. Ultimately, though, what United are, are a team funneled solely through Bruno Fernandes. Honestly, it's not just the numbers because his numbers are outstanding. It's the overall influence and impact. He takes responsibility. He's willing to make things happen. He is the one, you know, I said they tend to be risk averse, but he is the one who will take the risks to bend the game in his team's favor. And he's got automatic leadership. You can see that. The issue is, and, and as you mentioned there with West Ham, it was quite evident when he's not on the pitch, United are quite disorganized and they lack direct uh, direction. They lack an idea. And that is alarming because he's only joined in January. It will be a year next month. And in a year, he has become pretty much everything to them. A, co- a colleague in London recently commented to me that Bruno has had more of an effect on that Man United team than the manager. And it was actually hard to argue with that. Yeah, that's very, very true. Because I don't want to solely personalise this around Paul Pogba, but the thing about Pogba has always been the individual first and the collective second. Is that part of United's problem that it's almost there are pieces out there the jigsaw is there but no one seems to be able to make it fit you know there's a lack of joined up thinking recruitment there are some still lingering concerns about the quality of the center half pairings you've got the goalkeeping situation where there might have to be a a choice made perhaps sooner rather than later it's a really difficult multi-layered problem they've got there isn't it Amory? I look at somebody like um, and Paul Pogba when I was watching the game at you know at West Ham and and seeing him being dis- dispossessed by Declan Rice several times in the first half. You have to ask the question: What exactly is his role? And you mentioned about the central defence partnership. That is an ongoing issue, I think, for Manchester United, who are famed for having one of the most solid defensive partnerships in the history of football. And I think living up to that expectation of what players like Rio Ferdinand did and Yapstam did and Gary Pallister and others, you wonder how United are able to replicate that with players such as Victor Lindelof and Harry Maguire and various others. You need someone with athleticism and presence. That's what Manchester United represents to me, presence, that overbearing presence. And I look at that United team now and I wonder where that comes from. And again, going back to what Melissa said, it is about... Bruno Fernandes, I think he strikes fear into the heart of opposition players now. And when he's not on the pitch, there's an opportunity for, for, you know, teams to strike. And as for United, when, you know, Chris Smalling, I thought, I I do wonder about that, about him being sold. Eric Bailly being injury prone and erratic. 
I wondered why there was such a focus of trying to bring Jaden Sancho into the team when there were other areas of the pitch that needed addressing as a priority, the left-back issue, for example. You mentioned about the goalkeeping situation. I think that's a tough choice for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer because clearly his faith and his belief is in David De Gea. And the injury was the only thing that kept him out of that West Ham game. But I would fully expect him to be in between the sticks for the Leipzig game and definitely for the derby against City. And I think even though Dean Henderson can bring a commanding performance, I do wonder that David De Gea just has that edge. But the problem I think that David De Gea has is his feet. I think he finds it challenging with the ball as at his feet. And when you see other goalkeepers like Edison, like Allison at Liverpool, been able to deliver on that crucial part of the game in the modern game, I do wonder how long David De Gea will be able to retain the number one position. Mm. What about the nature of that threat from, from Leipzig, Melissa? Certainly looking at the, the game against Bayern at the weekend, they looked potential Bundesliga champions. And if they replicated that performance, I could see them sweeping United away. Leipzig are an incredibly well-managed team. And actually earlier we were speaking about United being a unit built on counter-attack. Leipzig used to be that. And Julian Nagelsmann came in and tweaked that to make them better controlled when they are in possession because he had realized that if you're only a counter-attacking team it's going to benefit you when you're when you're being given space and that is easy for teams to nullify when that is your sole weapon and we've seen them from last season under his management really grow and evolve as a team now they are really young and they will seed their best talents because that is just the nature of the beast. They are not a big club. And despite the investment and the ambitions of the ownership, that will remain the case. They will lose talents to Bayern, to United, to Chelsea, to Barca, to whoever. And yet they still find a way to to reinvent and to be quite a threat. They're supremely exciting to watch. They were disappointing in the first leg against United. United was sublime in that game and in the first leg against PSG. The issue is, like we said, we don't really know what to expect from Solskjaer's team. And I'd be astounded if Leipzig don't put in a supremely better display than they did in the first leg. Mm. Amory, can I get you to put your your old, well-worn PR hat on? Ed Woodward, he struck me as being notably unconvincing in, in the recent fans forum, which basically is probably the only forum I know where no questions were allowed. He pretty much offered little bef- beyond platitudes and generalities, no January sa- signings, very got, got great confidence in the manager. How do Manchester United, how are they dealing with almost like the public face of being a football club? Are they, are they convincing? When I worked in PR, the message that I consistently gave to my employers is it's, it's never about you. 
It's about the people that support you. It's the people that buy into your message. It's the people that talk about you. Pure PR is having other people talk about you. It's not about you talking about how brilliant you are. And I think that's where Manchester United and other football clubs actually fall down. They consistently see PR as something that we can talk about how brilliant we are and we've got these results and we're bringing in this player and so on and so forth. When in fact, you want other people to talk about it. And I think for me, there are times, you know, even when I work it, I'm working in sports journalism now and broadcasting, but I look at sometimes the way the communications that come out of Manchester United and I'm literally tearing my hair out because I'm thinking to myself, why have you said that? We use the example of that forum with Ed Woodward giving his discussion points and there's no opportunity to ask questions. Then what is the point of doing it in the first place? If you want to build relationships with your fans and supporters and the rest of the stakeholders, you need to have a two-way conversation with them. It's pointless you sitting there in front of a computer screen and just, you're just basically giving a speech. So I don't think it was a it was a well thought out exercise at all. And I think that impacts the reputation of the club. And reputation is quite key because a reputation is given to you. A reputation is something that's again, someone says about you. If you deliver the things in the right way, you're putting out, you're doing positive work, then people say, oh, isn't it brilliant that Manchester United are doing X, Y, Z, they did this and this and this, then your reputation grows. And then PR people then work to make sure that that reputation is maintained. When things keep going up and down and there are twists and turns, it impacts Manchester United reputation. So for me, you know, wearing, putting my old PR hat on, as you, you say, Mike, it's, you know, I'd love to go into Manchester United and sort them out in terms from a communications perspective, because I can see areas and gaps that need urgent, urgent attention. The question is, though, would they be prepared to listen to that advice and take it on board? Mm. You know, I suppose, as in so many ways, Melissa, there is there are pretty damning comparisons to be drawn with Liverpool, who... I've got a very proactive PR staff. You were at Anfield last night. The fans were back. You'll Never Walk Alone was sung with genuine power and emotion. A great fall, nil win. Fabinho at centre-half was absolutely outstanding. Surprise, surprise, there's stories this morning that he's going to get a new contract. It was almost, to me, a distillation of the insights that you gave us in, in, in your book, Believers, where you've got a club with a very, very strong sense of purpose and philosophy and the personalities are coalescing. Is that right? That is absolutely correct. And the starting point actually was a complete mixture of toxicity, distrust, having no faith in the team, having no faith in their own abilities in terms of the players and the staff that were at the club. This was preceding Jurgen Klopp's appointment. And I think because of what Liverpool have managed to do, especially over the last two seasons, you tend to forget or, or wipe away what the conditions were when he joined the club. And I think it's important now to look at that and to remember that because, you know, when we do talk about clubs like United that have slipped for a bit and, and are desperate to rise again, there are 
lessons to be learned. There are examples to follow. There is inspiration to be drawn because you can ultimately get it right. And this is not just in terms of United, with Arsenal, or all the sorts of clubs that we look at around Europe that are desperate to return to former glories. It's very hard to get it right, though. It's not just about having an elite manager whose personality sits so well with everything that the club stands for itself, who can re-energize a fan base. You have to have really good structures beneath that in place as well and have the manager willing to collaboratively work with those structures. And I think at Liverpool, it's been a perfect storm of all those elements really combining well, where you touched on it there, the fans, the manager, the players, everything feels like it's this build towards the same goal, the same purpose, one vision. And that is what has powered their success. Yeah, do you think, Amory, it was significant that Jurgen Klopp was put off by Ed Woodward's bombast when he was initially approached to see if he would succeed David Boys? Yeah, Jurgen Klopp is somebody, having read Melissa's book, is somebody who forensically looks into every single detail, considers every single aspect. And probably at that time, Mike, he, he probably looked at the situation the perfect storm, if you like, that was going down at Manchester United and thought, uh, uh, this isn't the right time for me or this isn't the right opportunity to me. It doesn't meet my values. It doesn't meet my philosophy. There's some deep-rooted issues, some cracks there that need to be sorted out. And and it was Liverpool's gain, 100%. And, you know, from Melissa's right, it's you could, you know, Manchester United could look at the way, and they probably won't, but they could look at the way of Liverpool. And, and it is that the jigsaw coming together, it is the, the structure of, of the ownership and the fans and the community as well, all working towards that, that same goal. So, yeah, so from Jürgen's point of view, I would say that he's been an absolute godsend to, to Liverpool FC, having looked at the history of Liverpool, where they are at that time when Brendan Rodgers was in charge, Things weren't going to plan. Results weren't exactly going to plan either. And and the beauty of what Jurgen Klopp has done, he was given time. And I think that's the most crucial thing of all, that he was given time to go in and, and heal the wounds that are at Liverpool FC and to take the club to where they are today. So as I said, I think it's been potentially Manchester United loss, but uh, a gain for Liverpool. Yeah. Give me some idea, if you could, please, Melissa, the mood music at Anfield last night. Liverpool's always been an emotionally driven club. Some would actually say emotionally incontinent at times. I thought it was really interesting at the end where Klopp did his, his usual thing towards the cop, but it, it was almost that was the first time we've been able to do it for six, nine months, whatever it's been. What was he like afterwards and where was the buzz there? Was there or was there a buzz there? Yeah. So I've been going to all the behind closed doors games and I felt really guilty for not really enjoying them because it is a privilege to get to go to games, especially when 
there are fans dotted all across the country who have been desperate, absolutely desperate, would have given anything to get into a stadium. But it hadn't felt like football at all. I was telling people it was sort of like going to a hospital. You know, you'd go and get your temperature checked. You'd walk in. It's cold. It's sterile. There's not really much noise. There's, you know, shouting with the players giving each other instructions, the technical team giving instructions. But there was no emotion, no feeling. It felt like you were just going through this routine, just going there, ticking off that you've been at the game, you know, the players getting the three points, you filing your match reports, covering the press conference, going home. There wasn't any sort of depth to the experience. Yesterday, getting to Anfield, the drive over, knowing that there would be fans, even though there were going to only be 2,000 of them, brought an excitement initially because it's something new, it's something to look forward to. It's a change from all those months of it feeling so distant, the game feeling not actually like the game. And getting into the stadium, walking up the steps and you can hear the noise was honestly, I, I actually can't describe it. It it just made everything make sense again. And there were some really touching moments. So the players come out to warm up and the roar from the crowd as soon as the first player comes out and then Klopp comes out and he'd already heard the roar and he's got this beaming smile on his face and you can tell that he's struggling to hide the emotion and just the joy of seeing the fans that you could see on the screen that there were grown men with tears in their eyes at being able to see the players again after such a lengthy period. You know, Trent took a while to get to his place on, on the subs bench because he was soaking up seeing them again. And... It, you know, we we sometimes tend to romanticize things in football, but it's definitely, definitely, definitely not a romantic slant to suggest that the fans being in there made such a difference to everything, really. It gave it a sense of occasion again, and it also made it feel like it just wasn't about the result. It was about that emotion, that connection, the reaction to every piece of play and extracting a response from the team based on that those reactions. Yeah, I, I love that. One of the stories in your book where you talked about Klopp's personally favourite portrait, which is essentially of him made up of staff names. Now, you know, that type of recognition of staff isn't, unique at Liverpool. I, you know, I remember going around Manchester City where, you know, it's a bit like Pyongyang sometimes, isn't it? But you've got you've got staff photographs there and there's recognition of their contribution to the football club, which is great. I suppose what we're seeing here, and, and you know, tell me if I'm wrong, 
is almost the authentic the, the importance of authenticity uh, and that obviously helped in incorporating the fan base into what Klopp wanted to do authenticity is everything and it has been so important to the process because we spoke about noise earlier on when you know externally the pressures can be quite hard for any club to deal with if you're trying to build something if you're trying to do something and it keeps getting knocked down because the the evidence is not coming as quick as people would like or as hard as people would like but if you are authentic if you have a clarity in in what you want to achieve and how you're going to achieve it you can be unswerving in in your way of working and your mythology and carrying it out and I think that's what we saw from him. You, you go back to those early days, you know, the defeat against Crystal Palace where fans are exiting the stadium. You have the draw against West Brom at Anfield where he walks the players over to the cop. And all, you know, there's all these question marks. Why is he doing that? Uh, Liverpool, a once great institution, is being drawn into mediocrity, celebrating draws. But all these things were building into a bigger picture to create that relationship with the fans, create the relationship with the players to show them that you really need to celebrate every bit of progress you make because you can't just go from nothing to everything. And one of the things he says so often is you have to learn how to lose and you have to lose big in order to realize you can win. Because at the point of losing, especially when it comes to finals, you did all the hard graft of getting there. You put yourself in the position to win. And actually what gets you over the line in winning is everything that you draw from losing. And the Champions League final against Tottenham is a great example. Because if you go back to Kiev... Liverpool probably play better than Real Madrid in Kiev and they still lose that game. Liverpool played better against Real Madrid than they did against Tottenham, but they win in, uh, at Atletico Madrid Stadium because they understood game management, they understood doing what was necessary to win rather than playing the best football of their lives or uh, which used to be the case in the past. They had grown from Kiev. And and I think that's a really important point to take away because we oftentimes can be so hard on losers or and so hard when, even if we see signs of progress, if we then see something that feels jolting, we stick with that, we react to that. And it's important to to look at a wider panorama of everything that's happening. Yeah, and to take that point on a little bit, I think we'd all be uncharacteristically naive to uh, to accept that there aren't issues at Liverpool. Probably most notably, uh, Amory, the acquisitive ownership they're pushing for greater influence, as as we've seen in Project Big Picture. The one thing, Amory, I'd like you to dwell on, and and it does puzzle me, 
is the indifference to the women's team. Now, fans came back on Sunday, but are Liverpool repeating Manchester United's initial mistake of of corporate indifference to the significance of the women's game? The thing is, you know, Liverpool women have won the WSL. They won it twice when Matt Beard was in charge. And that was something to build on, except since they won the WSL back in the day, they seem to have fallen off a, a cliff. And now, as we know, they're, uh, because of the coronavirus pandemic, they're now in the championship because the season was ended early under the points per game system. And it's a remarkable, baffling, confusing ideas of, of what has gone on there. And there are so many theories about it, but I don't think there's one specific answer as to why Liverpool women have dropped off in such a way. The one suggestion, the, the main suggestion is about the lack of investment. But Liverpool have pushed back on that and have said that they've demonstrated continued support and have a long-term strategy for the team. However, when you had several players saying at the end of last season that they were looking to move on from Liverpool women and the one common thread was is that they wanted to feel that they were valued, that they wanted to feel challenged again, you do wonder what was going on behind the scenes there. Maybe at the upper echelons within Liverpool Football Club itself. There's the problem of the pandemic that has certainly played a part for that team. The lack of goals within the team. They don't necessarily have a, a number one striker within the team. And the quality of the pitches that they've had to play on. As well as we know, Liverpool women don't play at, at Anfield. They play at Prenton Park, which is Tranmere Rovers' ground. They've had waterlogged issues there and other issues that have contributed as well to the various problems. So it's a perplexing situation for me, Mike. And I don't necessarily think that, that there is one answer, but it hasn't reflected well on Liverpool Football Club as a whole. And speaking to a couple of my friends who work within women's football. That's the general consensus. There is hope now and an optimism that there will be some sort of change, that they will push the club to try and encourage... Well, at the moment, for Liverpool women anyway, they're doing really well in the Championship. And I'd hope to see them back in back in the WSL for next season. They need the results to go their way. But at the moment, they seem to be doing that. But I, I think it's just keeping that spotlight on the club to ensure that they are supporting the women's team as much as they say they are, because I think you don't want to go back down that road of taking your eye off the ball, pardon the pun, when it comes to women's football, because its trajectory is only going to go up. And as you've seen now with Manchester United women, now that they've part of the WSL, they're sitting pretty at the top of the table, and rightly so, because they are playing brilliantly under Casey Stoney, there's definitely opportunities for Liverpool women to get back into that top echelons of the game. But to do that, they need continued support and investment and also for the club to support them publicly as well. There was definitely a receding interest in the women's team, lack of investment, lack of... I don't even know how to to term it, really. It, it was seen as as an aside as something that's there but not really important enough to go all in on and when you contrast it to all the the incredible processes that we've spoken about with the men's team all the pulling in the same direction all the details that have gone into turning them into this ridiculously strong machine 
it has been the absolute opposite for the women's team. There's been a talent drain. And when you listen to former players and managers and employees that have been at the club, they will all point to the same thing. You cannot be successful if there is no interest, tangible interest and contribution to your success from the hierarchy. And there is optimism now that that will change. And I actually, you know, we spoke earlier about Liverpool being an example for United in, in respects of the men's team. But United are an example for Liverpool with the women's team because they had got it wrong for so long. And then they decided, okay, we have to invest in the women's team. We have to take it seriously. We have to be excited about it. We have to encourage our supporters to be excited about it too. And look at them now and, and the sort of players they brought in, Heath and, and Casey Stoney's done an outstanding job. That can be replicated, but it can only be replicated if you're wholeheartedly wanting to do it and not and not I think appeasement is an issue a lot do not do things because you want to keep people off your backs or because you don't want to be a negative story do it because you are properly subscribing to it you want it to work you want it to be successful you want to actually you know be an example to the young kids to the young females in your area to show them the possibilities yeah well so both of you I, yeah i find it very difficult to rationalize really because it is such an obvious insult to the club's traditions amory i'm going to apologize in advance for intruding on a bit of private grief here tottenham top of the um, premier league essentially wiped the floor with your club, Arsenal, yesterday. Arsenal's worst start for 45 years. Can Tottenham twist the knife by staying in contention for the title for the rest of the season? Tottenham have been twisting the knife for a very, very long time. <laughs> this is not something that's happened overnight, Mike. This has been happening for a long, 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 long time. And as, as as much as I am disappointed about the result, if I put my Arsenal fan hat on for a second rather than being objective, I felt yesterday that I wasn't even sure that Arsenal could even get a draw. And for me, watching the game yesterday, you can see that Tottenham have just grown so much as a team. Can you put that down to solely down to Jose Mourinho? I don't think so necessarily. I think he's made some significant tweaks, but I think it's also very much about the players themselves. That partnership between Son and Harry Kane is, is world-class. Heuberg yesterday, goodness, we could do with him in the Arsenal team. You know, he just fighting for every ball, not allowing his oppo to, to even breathe, going in for those tackles, urging people to move forward, screaming at people to move forward. You want that passion and desire. And goodness me, we're missing that from Arsenal right now. You know, Tottenham as a team has been, has been building over the last few years. And, and I think the point of that has come when you see them reaching a Champions League final. 
And it didn't necessarily go their way, of course. But, you know, I think even back from those Pochettino days, those years of, of what he did with the club, this has been a long term thing. And I think now it's starting to come to fruition. I don't know, though, if Tottenham can hang on to being top in the Premier League. I think Christmas is going to be a really pivotal part of their season. They need Harry Kane to stay fit. They need Sonny to stay fit as well for me. But goodness, they are title contenders. And I can honestly say that as an Arsenal fan, and no doubt I'm going to get pelters for it. But let we have to be honest about this. I know that there's a thinking that, you know, they haven't won a trophy yet. Arsenal has a cabinet full of trophies. Yes, that's true. That's a fact. But there is no reason why now that Tottenham couldn't win a trophy this season, for sure. I, just for me, that game was just disappointing from, you know, an Arsenal perspective. The fact that they couldn't even break down Spurs in the second half. Spurs managed to park the bus and sit deep and didn't even get a shot off target. I mean, they were disciplined. They were clinical. And for me, I think it's time for Arsenal to explain themselves now. You know, it's all right having the ball 61% of the time, but you've got to do something with that ball. And crossing it into the box isn't what we need. Arsenal need goals. What is their style going forward? You know, I can look at certain players within that Tottenham team and I know exactly what their job is. I look at the Arsenal team and I wonder what certain players are doing. Willian is one of them. How come Ainsley Maitland-Niles can't get into the Premier League team at the moment? I thought he was fantastic in the Europa game against Rapid Vienna and yet he's not playing in the Premier League as often as he should be. So, you know, for me, I, you know, this is a bitter pill to swallow, but this is, this is the reality. This has been coming for some time. And I think now Arsenal are in crisis mode, whereas Tottenham are flying high. Yeah, once Michelin's out of the way, the, the next appointment at Anfield, Melissa, is a certain Mr Mourinho turning up. What do you expect of him and... He's going to absolutely love that, isn't he? He is definitely going to love that. Those are the sorts of occasions he was made for. I expect Tottenham to be extremely organised, extremely obstructive and extremely good on the break. A massive threat of theirs has been that relationship between Kane and Son. It has powered them to the top of the table, really. And I, I think what you're seeing from them at the moment is a genuine belief that they, they knew they were a good team. They were a very, very good team under Maurizio Pochettino, who actually made us think of Tottenham completely differently than we had done prior to, to his arrival at the club. We looked at Tottenham and we thought they should be winning trophies. They should be challenging for the title. And I mean, when last had we ever considered them in those sort of respects? So they knew they were a very good team. But I think now aligned with somebody who is going to convince them because of his CV, that he will get them over the line to winning something. And he will be telling them privately that they have all the tools, especially in this very strange season, to become champions. You can see it in the players that they're operating with that sense of, yeah, he's right. We, we totally, totally 
are a hundred percent in this, we can do it. But the tests will come in those sorts of games where, you know, over the last few seasons, Liverpool and Manchester City have set the benchmark and have set the benchmark over the course of a season. Spurs have been very, very good, very clever as well, because they have hurt you in attack when they've needed to, but they've also been so disciplined and so defensively minded as well. But it's now maintaining that. Can they maintain it? And can, we've seen what they did against City, can they do it against Liverpool? But then also, can they continue? And for me, we all know December is a horrible, horrible month. And if you get to mid-January and you're still, you know, in the mix, then that is a really, really positive and powerful sign for Tottenham. Yeah, it's interesting. If you've got a player's buy-in, you know, because of the instinct of a professional footballer when they're dealing with a manager is, well, what have you done for me lately? In that context, Amory, Frank Lampard, I get the sense that he's got buy-in from that squad, even though it's overstocked and people are going to go in and out of the team. Do you think that's a good impression? I think it's the right impression, actually. And, you know, I did question Frank Lampard in terms of the amount of money that was spent in the summer on seven players, as we know, you know, £200 million. I did wonder how these players would, would gel together. Could they find that dynamic that, that Chelsea have? And it was a question mark for me. And I, I whether they could settle in quickly, could Frank Lampard find his best 11 in, you know, some top quality names that he's got within that team. And it's taken a few matches, but I think he's, he's Frank's starting to get there. I think Frank Lampard is, is starting to get there. And one key appointment for me is Mendy in the goal. He's made such a difference, I think, to that Chelsea side. Game management as well. Frank Lampard is starting to show that he understands where he needs to make changes within a game. The defence has improved so much with Ben Chilwell. I think that's been a fantastic buy for Chelsea, for sure. Thiago Silva, again, I thought I had question marks about him. And I have to say, because of his age, I did wonder if he still had the legs. He clearly does. He clearly does. I'm a big fan of Rhys James. I think he's, you know, he's a real threat as a fullback. And if you look at the results at the moment for Chelsea, you know, they can score goals from all sides of the pitch, apart from the goalkeeper, obviously, but they can score from defence, from midfield, obviously from the forwards. They're intense. They've got prowess. You know, again, we talk about title contenders for Tottenham. I, you know, don't count Chelsea out of that mix at all purely because of the squad debt, purely because of the talent and the quality they've got in that squad. And I think for me, Frank Lampard, we talked about one of his priorities on an earlier podcast. We talked about, for me, I felt one of his priorities was to close that points gap on Liverpool and on Man City. Man City haven't had the season start that they've wanted. Liverpool second in the table at the moment, likely to pull away over the next few games. Chelsea, I think, will will be sitting on their backs to remind people that they're still there and they're genuine title contenders. Christmas is, again, we talked about Christmas being a really important part of this season. 
it will be a test, as Melissa has alluded to. I think it'll be a test for a lot of the teams, and I think for sure for Chelsea, if they can get through that, just like with Tottenham, I think they're genuine title contenders. Yeah, Klopp has gone on record as saying exactly that, hasn't he, Melissa, that he feels that Chelsea are genuine or even actually title favourites. Was that a bit of, um, you know, those tiresome mind games that we've got to get used to? I think that was part of it. But when you look at Chelsea's strength in depth, the, the quality they have, especially in the attacking department, it is, it, wow, just, 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 just wow. The fact that he can rotate so well without losing much of the gold dust is such a luxury to have. And, you know, we spoke about Bruno's influence earlier. And when you have so much riding on a player, it is very difficult to, or actually it's quite easy for the opposition to try and nullify that player and kill off your biggest strengths. With Chelsea, they have goals coming from everywhere. Kurt Zuma, highest scoring defender in Europe. They have so many threats all across the pitch that you're wondering, how actually are we going to stop them here? And I think when they had made all the signings, you thought, how is everyone going to settle? Will that take time? And the adjustment is always necessary and it's natural that it will happen. And what we're seeing now is everything fitting into place nicely. Again, it's it's so early to say definitively whether they can last the course, but they have the one thing in a season like this that is fundamental, which is options. And their options contain some of Europe's most exciting young talent with the highest of ceilings. And Anne-Marie made the point there about Kepa and, and Mendy. That was huge because Chelsea were being undermined by the psychology of that whole situation. You had a manager and a team expecting the goalkeeper to make a mistake and it became a self-fulfilling prophecy because he would make a mistake and they were so inhibited by that whole cycle. The player himself, the team, the manager and remedying that has been the basis for what we see now, which is a very long unbeaten run and also a very convincing one. That's true. I'd like to sort of pull things together now if I could. You articulated very well, Melissa, the the joy of having fans back, you know, in your case, at Anfield. And I think we saw that across the game. I, I felt it came across uh, exceptionally well from Tottenham as well, even West Ham, even, you know, they're playing in that modern mausoleum. We've had a weekend which has refocused the debate on racism in football, specifically by the booing of players taking the knee at Millwall. I think it's very interesting 
listening to Anton Ferdinand. Anton was on this podcast last week after what is a very powerful documentary and which that documentary asks some very searching and disturbing questions about the way the FA deal with this and perhaps been borne out by the fact they can't even get the recruitment of Greg Clark's successor right. Just want to dwell on something that Anton said this morning, uh, Amory. He said the onus is too much on the players to make a stand against racism. He, he said it needs to be a collective fight against it from the media, the broadcasters, other organisations. Do you agree with that? Have we all got a role to play in this? We certainly have a, a role to play. Everybody has a role to play. Should be, the onus should be on everybody to combat racism. The thing is, though, I think it's I think what we've forgotten about is, is that there are some sections of the, the media, there are some sections, you know, some clubs, there are some supporters who have been consistent in tackling the issue of racism. And I think that's the word that needs to be used here is about consistency, because it tends to drop off after a bit. After the murder of George Floyd, of course, the rise of the protests the calls for change were really, really high, really, really intense, very depth. And then I feel over the last maybe month or so, I feel that things have started to tail off again. So I agree with Anton Ferdinand to a point that it should be on everybody. It should never just be on the players' shoulders at all, at all. We should all shoulder the responsibility collectively as a society. But we need to be consistent about it. It can't be you know, upping, reaching the high levels on one day and then a couple of months later, things, you know, go back to normal in inverted commas and people return to their normal lives and get on with their day jobs. For me, it is about consistently banging the drum, keeping the voices loud, holding people to account. I don't like the term calling people out, but sometimes you have to call people out for their behaviours, for decisions that have been made about certain things. And you have to keep pushing for change and make sure your voice is loud in that respect. So for me, I think at the moment, I think Lewis Hamilton, slightly diverging, he made the point about that he felt that the messaging about Black Lives Matter, about wanting change, not necessarily been diluted, but had gone a little bit quiet. I agree with him. And I wouldn't just say that it's a football issue, as we've talked about before. It's very much a, a society issue. But we all need to work towards that one common goal. We talked about, we use that analogy of a jigsaw. If you have all the places within a jigsaw not fitting together, there's going to be this constant jarring. And I think we've seen that over the weekend. You know, I could see that coming, to be honest, Mike. I knew it would happen at some point. I knew when fans returned, I knew there were some sections of fans, supporters who would not like players taking the knee. And I did wonder if the question was going to be actually asked. And I was a little bit surprised, actually, that nobody seemed to ask the question. And I think it was the right question. And maybe it should have been asked, actually, when QPR issued their statement explaining why they were no longer taking the knee. Why didn't actually somebody say, is this something we should continue doing within the upper echelons of the game? Fans were going to return at some point. And if you look at the bigger picture and you can see that, there are sections that are not going to be happy about players taking the knee. What was going to be the plan? So I think in terms of the the governing bodies, the players, the clubs, even supporters, there's a, you know the groups of supporters that we have coming together around a table and having a discussion about what is next. 
Now that players have taken the knee, what is our next course of action? We know fans are going to be returning to the stadiums. Do we want to continue doing it or do we want to show our solidarity in another way? So for me, this weekend was no surprise. I'm not angry about it. I'm not surprised about it at all. I'm not even disappointed, actually, because I knew it was going to come. I knew it was going to happen. I'm probably so desensitized to this all now. Nothing really shocks me anymore. Nothing really shocks me anymore. I'm slightly surprised, actually, that my local home club, Colchester United, I found uh, uh, to I understand there were some boos that rang around the ground when the players took the knee there. Again, you know, I'm just like, I just sigh at it, really, because, again, I'm not surprised by it. So, you know, I think we talk about it being a collective responsibility. I want it to be a collective responsibility because I think it's the only way that we're going to be able to drown out this horrible disease called racism. Yeah, Uh, some sobering words there, Anne-Marie. I suppose I'll, I'll give you, Melissa, another example of a sobering paragraph. Darren Lewis, friend of the show, been a mate of mine for more years than both of us care to remember. In the mirror this morning, he said, and he made a really, really, I think, poignant and pertinent point. He said, in what other industry would employees accept working in such an environment? Where else would you see black men asked to go out in an environment where their right to even exist was being dismissed? Something's got to give. What do you... What do you think of that? That is absolutely spot on. And having spoken to a wealth of players, both past and present on this, they cannot understand why they are made to feel like it doesn't matter because they get paid well. They they shouldn't they, they should be subject to whatever behavior comes their way because of their salaries, because they're living out their dreams, because they're in a profession that so many others would trade so much to be in. And that is utter, utter nonsense. Because if there was some sort of social experiment where, you know, a billionaire could give an ordinary person who feels that way, millions to go out there and be abused on the color, based on the color of your skin, based on where you've grown up or, you know, what your lineage is or anything like that. And then have that thrown at you on a daily basis as well on social media to have Everything or anything good you do questioned and told, ah, you've only done something there. You've only been given that opportunity because the game is starting to get woke and you're a token. Any of that, to be subject to that permanently, there is no amount of millions that will have you living comfortably and mentally healthily through that. It's, it's just not on. And in terms of of what we're seeing at the moment, I think there's always been a discomfort because 
you don't want to associate. I'm a football fan. You're a football fan. You know, there are so many football fans tuning into the show. You don't want to associate with people who are racist. You don't, you don't want to think fans are being racist, are being anti-progressive. And so you tend to say, oh, it's only such a small number. Ah, you know, why are we giving them a voice? Why are we emphasizing what they're doing? Why don't we focus on, on the positive elements? But it's fundamental if we are to get rid of it, that we acknowledge and, and you go back to the scenes in June of the Defence League marches and protests and you had loads of lads turning up in their football gear to, you know, deface monuments and stuff, to stand up for what they believe in, all these kinds of things. And, and there are the same people that go through the turnstiles, they're match-going fans. And if we don't confront head-on that in football grounds... There are people who will be, who have been influenced by a lot of far-right propaganda and who will be carrying that into the stadium with them. Then we cannot, if we can't acknowledge that and, and confront it and deal with it, then we cannot cure it. And ultimately, football is a reflection of society. And when you have Brexit rhetoric, that has been so strong, when you have anti-immigration that has been so strong, when you have anti-Islamophobia being so strong, when that is shoved in, in people's faces on a daily basis, then you cannot be surprised when areas of society feel emboldened to air those kind of views. Yeah. Well, I've got to know Millwall Football Club pretty well down the years. I spent a season embedded there writing a book. I met some great people doing great work in a disadvantaged community. It's a complex club, judged often by stereotypes, and it's now in a state of crisis. The booing of players taking a knee before Saturday's match against Derby wasn't, as Anne-Marie said, unexpected. It had been predicted on message boards that are no more than cesspits. When fullback Marlon Romeo, a black player, spoke about his distress after the game, this was one of the milder responses. He should never play for us again after coming out with that. I hope one of the non-kneeling QPR players snaps his legs on Tuesday. Let that sink in for a minute. I argued that it was time for the club to make a huge gesture when I spoke to a senior member of the staff there. I think that they should close the ground for tomorrow night's home game against QPR. That's unlikely to happen, and I fear the worst. Football and our society has a huge problem whether it cares to admit it or not. Something has to change, but will it? I'm pessimistic. Thanks to Anne-Marie and Melissa for their insight and to you for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.